the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to this KGNW broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the heart of the city. Well, this is Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Development for 820 AM, The Word. And uh, I have a special guest with me today. He's Dr. Earl Kreps. He's the Director of Center for Leadership Studies at Northwest University. Welcome to Heart of the City, Dr. Kreps. Thank you, Chuck. It's great to be here today. Well, uh, it's uh, you and I have just met recently, and mm-hmm. we were talking in studio before uh, we started this uh, the program, and it uh, seems like we're old friends almost. You've, you've got some mutual friends and, uh, and uh, had a good time just chatting for briefly uh, regarding some of our experiences. It does seem like our lives have a strange degree of overlap, <laughs> even though we've never really met before a few uh, days ago. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Well, so t- tell me, uh, what does the doctor of, uh, d- and director of Center for Leadership Studies do at Northwest University? Well, Northwest University asked me to come on board earlier this year to set up the Center for Leadership Studies. And what that means is my job is to create a couple of new doctoral degrees in organizational leadership. Uh, One's a PhD and one's an EDD. And our hope really is to equip people with advanced learning that will give them greater impact in the marketplace and in their professions and in the classroom so that they have tools to do more in the kingdom than they could have done before. Uh, There are a lot of exciting ways that these degrees can be used. And I think what really was the closer for me is I've never heard anyone say, imagine what I could have been if I just hadn't earned that PhD. (laughs) (laughs) You'll you'll never hear that out of anyone's mouth. (laughs) Right, right. Well, has Northwest offered a a PhD uh, degrees uh, before? Uh, Not a PhD. We have a very successful PsyD, a doctorate in counseling psychology that's been in place for 10 years that's Mm -hmm. done very well. So our PhD and EDD are our second and third doctoral degrees at Northwest. I see. Well, I've had an opportunity over the last few years to get to know um, the president of the school, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, uh, Dr. Castleberry is an incredible man, and uh, just really appreciate his heart for ministry and for the community, for uh, you know, his books on immigration, all of these things. He's a he's a dynamic leader and is is helping to move that school forward in some some significant ways. We're really excited about. President Castleberry's ability to expand the future in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. Our doctoral programs at the center actually come out of his vision for what Northwest could become as a premier provider of doctoral education here in our area, which does not require anything more than what we already have. So he's leading the way in that regard with uh, doctoral education, and uh, we have a great uh, overall revision of the campus structure and architecture, 
a master plan we're working with the city on. Mm. And because of his leadership, we've grown for 10 consecutive years, which is not a tale you hear told about very many schools. But uh, that has been what we've been able to experience. So we're really grateful for him. Yeah. One of the things I like to do on this program, Heart of the City, is, you know, I love to meet uh, pastors and ministry leaders and uh, have them share their story about how they came to faith because, you know, it, it, becoming, uh, working at a, at a Christian university it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's a, a reason why you got to where you are. And uh, so I like to hear those stories because I think it encourages uh, our listeners and encourages us to, uh, to consider how God has been faithful through the seasons of life and has brought us into the places that we are. So I'd love to go back and just find out a little bit more about you. And uh, originally not from this area, where did you grow up? I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Ah, So are you a Steelers fan then? 55 years. Wow. I have a terrible towel hanging on a hook in my office, (laughs) and I'm uh, unashamedly a Steelers fan. Oh, my daughter lives in Maryland, and she's a Steelers fan. I always tease her because when I write to her and text her, I I write, you know, the Steelers, S-T-E-A-L-E-R-S. See, that's so cruel. Let's not go down that path. <laughs> well, we're we're not bitter at all about the Super Bowl in uh, in uh, 2005. We're not thinking about that at all. But neither are we. Yeah. So it's, I guess, another overlap in yeah. our lives. Yeah. So how long in Pittsburgh then? Uh, I moved there a very young, third grade, and my family still mostly lives uh, in the city. And really, that's where my backstory begins, because my dad was also my pastor uh, in western Pennsylvania. And as a child, I found out too much about what church people were up to. I was mm. trying to make up my mind about this whole religion thing, and my parents were great people, but I would say it was a situation of TMI about mm. what was happening. Right. So backstage at church, uh, I learned about who was stealing what, who was embezzling, who was cheating in their business, who was sleeping with whom, and all of these kinds of things. And as an elementary age kid, this hits you like a ton of bricks. You don't have the intellectual equipment to process it or draw fine distinctions. And that was combined with visiting my mom's people who were from a different flavor of Christianity. Uh, I grew up among liturgical folks, a lot of wonderful things in that tradition. My mom grew up among the charismatic folk, uh, again, a lot of wonderful things in that tradition. Uh, But what I saw, of course, as a very young person was only the extremes, the the way kids do. And after seeing uh, her people uh, uh, making strange noises in church and having two-hour song services and pulpit-pounding sermons about what a bunch of worms we were, and then my dad's people all seemed very cold and stiff, and we had minor key organ music. It was a veil of sadness for 50 minutes every Sunday morning. I popped out of the uh, toaster in high school as a complete 100% cynic. Mm. I simply decided it was all a lie because all I had to go on were the people in front of me and the observations of of my eyes in those days. And no one was there to lead me in the right direction. And honestly, Mm. I think that's why I'm in the leadership business now Mm -hmm. because my backstory was about a lack of spiritual leadership The only reason I didn't plunge off into college in the 1970s and be lost forever from my family is that uh, 
a new leader came into my dad's church, my youth pastor. He was Tom, and Tom was the coolest guy I ever met in my Mm. life. Mm -hmm. He was a former drug-running motorcycle criminal who had been miraculously converted, literally a road to Damascus type of experience. And he had a great motorcycle and a jazzy-looking leather jacket. He had a big old haircut, like a big disco ball afro. uh, He was just amazing. And I began to be able to spend time with Tom, and I met someone in him who modeled a faith where you get rid of the guns, you get rid of the drugs, but you get to keep the motorcycle, the haircut, and the cool jacket. Cool. And I I thought, (laughs) now (laughs) this is a religion I can do. (laughs) You know, he was was Christian, but he was cool at the same time, and he he lived – righteously, but he didn't seem to need a big, thick rule book to mm-hmm. do it. He wanted to live righteously, and and he was hungry for the experience and the power of God, but he wasn't extremist and uh, bizarre in the way all of that was expressed. He was able to bring it all together in this very culturally connected but not compromised, mm-hmm. for real, 3D person. I had never seen that before. And what I discovered was that uh, cynicism can only tell you what is not. It can never tell you what is. Hmm. And, and Tom started to show me what is. And as his example unfolded before me, this tremendous uh, young leader who's very young in his ministry, he modeled for me what a life of faith could be. And he showed me what leaders did. And if Tom had not been present in my life, I don't know, Chuck, what would have happened to me, but he was there by the grace of God. And through that, uh, very late in my high school career, I had uh, a powerful experience with God in a Lutheran Bible study, and I was converted on the spot. Wow. All of my arguments and my clever rationalizations and my mocking jokes all just collapsed. And the Bible, by the power of the Holy Spirit sweeping through my life, suddenly became God's word to me, and that has never changed since that day in 1971, probably. Uh, The Bible still is that to me every day, and I attribute it to my friend Tom. Yeah. Well, that was kind of the height of the Jesus movement going on at the time. There was a lot of that. I mean, there was kind of that uh, clash, if you will, of traditional church, and all of a sudden these hippie freaks were getting saved <laughs> and doing some wacky things, yeah. and they had rock and roll music, yes. and yeah. all of this was happening, and, uh, and people were genuinely getting saved. There were conversions in the thousands, and churches that flourished in those days simply welcomed the hippies. That's mm-hmm. pretty much what the playbook was. My wife was converted— among the Jesus people in California, and myself within the charismatic renewal in the mainline Mm -hmm. denominations uh, out east, uh, Pittsburgh being one of the epicenters of that revival. But across the board, it was was a youth revival in the main, not exclusively. And we are praying and trusting God for the next one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been in that one, and I don't want to see things end without seeing another one to give God really a trip to the plate among our young people, to raise up the next generation of Toms, to sow them into the lives of these young people 
who will do things we might not live to see, but who can change the world for the kingdom of God. So you get saved. Mm -hmm. What's your dad think? I mean, did you get kind of radically saved where he's kind of concerned? Uh, You know, he was going through a spiritual conversion process of his own. He was on the verge of leaving the ministry in Uh discouragement. I, I found out dad had his own form of cynicism going on. Interesting. But God encountered him. The Holy Spirit came on his life. And uh, my father, who had been uh, just anti-Catholic, anti-black, he was big into anti. He was against a whole (laughs) lot of stuff. When the Holy Spirit came on him, uh, the next thing I knew, he was doing joint weddings with Father Murphy from the the Catholic Church down the street. He was defending uh, the black kids in our city against our rather militant police chief at the time and opening up his gymnasium for— uh, sports leagues for the community and setting up uh, shops in the church to sell uh, very, very inexpensive clothing and household goods and uh, taking frozen turkeys to uh, families in poverty at Thanksgiving. And I looked at this and I thought, has there been an alien abduction? <laughs> yeah, who took uh, my dad? Who took my dad and yeah. who is this man? Yeah. I, I, but I have seen what happens when the spirit comes. Mm-hmm. And he was radically transformed, so much so he's in trouble with his church uh, all the time. And they were asking this question, who is this man? And we're praying and believing in my own life and at Northwest uh, that we'll see that kind of outpouring again in our generation. And we feel like, you know, setting up things like the center and so forth, we can't do God's work for him. But we can create environments where we're ready mm-hmm. for God to do amazing things, and we're ready to respond right now when he does. Well, you're listening to Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Development for 820 AM The Word, and my guest today is uh, Dr. Earl Kreps. He's the Director of Center for Leadership Studies at Northwest University. So what happened next? You get saved. You, you hang around Tom for a little bit longer. I did. And then what happened? Well, I went to college, and uh, in college, uh, I discovered that I wanted to be in the communication field, and so I did grad school, finished my Ph.D. at Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois, and then left for my first professorial job at the University of Vermont. And while there, I went to a simple Sunday night service, and the Lord spoke to me that night after one of the worst sermons I've ever heard in my life, not to put too fine a point on things, but the Lord's arm is not short. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, it was opened up to me that vocational ministry was going to be the next step for us. And I had married my wife on the condition that I was not ever going to be a pastor, so we (laughs) had to navigate that little uh, piece of business. Uh, and I ended up uh, as a volunteer staff member in, in our local church. I set up uh, an office in the church building while the pastor was on vacation. And when he got home, I said, well, you can send me home or keep me. You know, no offense either way. You're the boss. Right. And he kept me. So I started doing my first job, which was folding all the bulletins for the Sunday morning service and preparing the Wednesday night Bible study. From there, my wife and I uh, left to pastor uh, in Maine, so we were in New England for about 10 years, and then also pastored in uh, the Gulf Coast of Florida. Was that, you know, you hear a lot about the East Coast and kind of the the mindset of Northeastern believers. Was it a different kind of environment than 
than uh, Pittsburgh and what was happening in in there? Uh, yeah, the eastern uh, coastal areas, particularly New England, are really a unique type of culture, very unlike where where I grew up, which is just a little bit Midwestern. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh's kind of in the middle. Yeah, kind and of an so, industrial, very much blue so. collar mindset. And uh, New England was. Wonderful, which is great. I love the people there and still have friends there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a very good experience there, but it was unnerving because it didn't fit the sort of pastoral playbook that my more middle of the country friends believed in. The Mainers had missed that memo. <laughs> they were not, uh-huh. uh, they did not want to pastor with a necktie. They just wanted you to talk to them, they didn't want you to yell and pound on things. So, we got our first lesson in Adaptation 101, mm-hmm. how to contextualize the gospel for the people that you are sent to have a relationship with. And we had to start beginning to pound out what is the relationship between all this higher education stuff we have in our life and actually working with people on the sidewalk level. Mm-hmm. How do those two – because I had this academic side to me that was really important, but we had this pastoral side – as well, which in those days, and we're talking about the Reagan administration here, those two weren't supposed to go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were aliens. They were enemies, uh, not friends. So we spent the majority of uh, the rest of the 80s and 90s uh, pastoring in, in different places, and I went to work with our national network, the Assemblies of God, for a while. I was uh, the singles ministry guy back mm-hmm. in, in the day. And from there to our network seminary in Springfield, Missouri, I directed their Doctor of Ministry program. So that was my second tour in the academic world. And then we church planted in Berkeley, California. Oh, my. Yes. Now, that's a transition. It was not New England. (laughs) (laughs) It was not New England. But our higher ed background, and at this point, my wife uh, also has a terminal degree, a Doctor of Ministry degree, came in to very handy because that city is built around education, Mm -hmm. around the University of California. And so having a graduate education was something like having your guild cart to operate in the environment. Didn't impress anybody, but you have to have a license to drive. You got to have it. So we were able to hold our own with anybody and everybody in that environment and uh, let them know that uh, people who follow Jesus – can be smart, too, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and also can go to school and Mm -hmm. uh, can uh, do the kinds of things that uh, these friends did in the city. Uh, We love the city, love the people, have many, many friends there, uh, and we're able to see the higher ed piece as not just preparation theologically, but preparation in terms of how you think about the world, how you relate to people who also come from uh, that angle. So we had a, a, a very, very challenging, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. experience, but also for me, probably the best ministry experience of my life. We got to answer this question. When you don't have a building and you don't have a band and you don't have a smoke generator, is just Jesus just enough? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we found out the answer was yes. Yes. You know, for, I don't know why this is coming into my mind, but I, I'm kind of marching back to your story about Tom. And the thing that uh, I think was so appealing to you is you found someone who is really genuine. 
genuine in their faith, genuine in their walk with the Lord. Um, I don't know if he was not didn't sound like he was much of an intellectual or highly educated guy, you know, but I really believe that that's what people are looking for, aren't they? Mm-hmm. An honesty and a genuineness about their faith, their walk, their life, their failures. Sometimes they don't may necessarily find that in an academic setting. I'm sure there's some of the show that goes on there, but that is really what people are looking for in their leaders and in, in people they're going to follow. You know, whether you've had the opportunity for schooling or not, and s- some people do, some people less so, if you are for real, that is the ultimate weapon. Now, Tom's life had prevented him from getting a lot of higher education. He had some, but he was a super smart guy, mm-hmm. very instinctive, great with people, sharp, good problem solver, and I admired all of that. But what I really admired was that he was not acting. His life wasn't religious theater. Hmm. It it was actually him. He was the same in private as he was in public. He didn't put on a... He was a person, not a persona. Hmm. And that made me think... This there might be something to this if a for real person sees some benefit in it. So whether you're a CEO or whether you are a person working on the line, you know, assembling something or, or whatever you do in life, you might think uh, I have very little to contribute. Maybe I'm nobody special, or maybe what I do is too specialized for people to relate to. If you're genuine, that's the biggest thing you can contribute because where do you find that today mm-hmm. in our hyped up overstimulated social media brand saturated world sometimes you just want somebody to sit down and say so how's it going for you mm-hmm. you know what's how's your life these days and then to actually listen to what you say next yeah yeah it's it, it's having those genuine relationships yeah that I think people are missing in in significant ways. You mentioned social media, and I don't want to get too far off track. We have a couple minutes left. But I I think the social – I was just listening to an interview today and uh, about the the danger that's occurring with social media, um, and they were talking about the big four, Apple, Google, Facebook, uh, and one other uh, major uh, company and how they're – their mindset, their worldview as a company is pretty significant as how they want to manage and control people's lifestyle. And it's almost people don't think, oh, a company has that sort of a thing? Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. They, they have algorithms of your life that you can't even imagine that they have. And so this is the environment that we're trying to, to live in and work in and to train leaders in. And this is something that you have to navigate now at uh, Northwest as far as how you how you manage that with with the next generation. You know, I have a friend, Mark Madrigal, who once said, you have to decide whether technology is a means or an end. And as long as it's just a means, it's okay. But if it becomes the be-all, the end-all, the thing that you serve— then that's not okay. It should be serving you. Mm-hmm. And in the atmosphere we live in, that can be a tricky kind of discernment to figure out which side of the line you're on. So what we're going to do is we are going to use this idea that it's just a means. It's a tool in a toolbox. And so 
our classes will involve uh, internet education. About half of the program that I'm setting up uh, will be online, for example. Mm -hmm. But we'll never do that at the expense of people actually getting to know people. We'll use the internet to connect them, not to divide them Mm -hmm. so that they're able to bring their best, their genuineness into uh, those relationships. And we're using a cohort-based system, small groups of about 10. And this is exactly the reason we want you to know someone for real by facing the same challenges together and helping each other get through like like a family would. And we feel like at the end of four years of that, you have a degree, and that's that's wonderful and commendable, but you have those relationships which you can get no other way because it's with people who have followed this path, and hopefully a better definition of what genuineness is will, will come out of that. Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining me today, Dr. Earl Kreps, the uh, C- Director for Center of Leadership Studies at Northwest University. And if you want to get more information about Northwest, you can go to uh, northwestu.edu. That's the one. And uh, thank you for joining me today on Heart of the City. Thanks so much, Chuck. God bless. You've been listening to this KGNW special, Heart of the City. For more information about how your pastor or ministry can be featured on 820 AM The Word. Call Chuck Olmstead at 206-269-6216 or go to 820amtheword.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.